people maybe you don't recognize anymore. Okay, with all that, we're going to get in the tough chapter. It's Genesis 34, and our title tonight is Compromises Bring Consequences. Compromises Bring Consequences. And in a, a lot of ways, it's a terrible chapter, by the way. Um, a lot of bad stuff happens, and it's terrible. I would make the case in two ways. Um, what happens to Dinah? You'll see that in the verse two verses, and it's Jacob's only daughter, Dinah. Also, her brother's actions afterwards. So there's two terrible things. But as I was studying and reading this, here's what else I found. This makes it, to me, even probably terrible also. God is not mentioned once in this whole chapter. Not a single mention of God. And so what that should tell us, this whole chapter is about what the people are doing in their own power. Jacob's going to be Jacob, and like he's been doing in some of our other books and chapters. But they don't talk to God. They don't ask God for advice. They're just doing their own thing, and it's usually a bad thing. You'll see. Third thing that we learned, if you were here last week, remember Brian told us that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. He had a name change. This whole chapter, he's known as Jacob because he's still got a lot of Jacob in Jacob. He, it's a slow name change. Even though God told him his new name, even in Scripture they call him Jacob this chapter because he's behaving like a Jacob. So remember, Jacob is deceiver. So with all that, let's read the first two verses, one and two. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the, with the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and he raped her. That's the point I wanted to be PG-13. Um, there's no excuse for it. We'll talk about that more. It's a terrible thing. And we'll talk about that more in a second. I want to focus a tiny bit on, on where they are. Remember, Brian told us last week, if you were here, that Jacob was told to go back to um, the promised land but he, he didn't go the right place. He was supposed to go to Bethel. Here he is outside Shechem. And, and Shechem is a pagan city. So he's in the wrong place at the wrong moment. And he's also mingling with a bunch of pagan, ungodly people. And so keep in mind, that disobedience of not going to Bethel is really what I would call the root cause of all the bad behavior in this whole chapter. It's all because he disobeyed and didn't do what he didn't what God told him to directly, which is our first main point if you're taking notes tonight, comes from our title. Compromises usually have painful consequences, especially, especially when it's a spiritual compromise. Compromises are bad enough, but when we compromise ourselves spiritually and try to mingle with the enemy, as I would put it, there's a price to pay, and there's a heavy price we already saw. His only daughter has already gotten raped over it. And by the way, this Canaanite city is called Shechem. It'll be a little confusing because the main character's name, or one of the main characters, name is Shechem. He's the prince, um, the daughter, I mean the son of the ruler. And in a way, I think we'll see pretty quick, we've already seen his morals by the, how he treated Dinah. The town's morals are reflected in his morals. Um, it's not a good place. And as I was studying and reading and already kind of knew this, remember in, in Scripture, God, it's some hard verses sometime when God will say, take care of that whole people group, wipe them out, get rid of them. They're pagans. And in this culture, this Canaanite culture, 
rape was sort of okay. Any unguarded female, it was okay to do that. And so they were just behaving like what their culture was sort of normal in. And that's why I blame Jacob. Like, because my real question is, I study this, even these first two verses, where's Jacob in the story? Where's Leah, for that matter? Where's mom? Why would they allow their only daughter to go out all alone and sort of socialize? It sounded like she was going to meet some pagan women, but even that's a bad idea. They've got 11 brothers. You know, send some guy. As long as she has a man with her, that wouldn't have happened. They let her go unprotected, unguarded, and terrible things happen. So we'll talk more about the parents as we keep talking. Verse 3, his heart, and that's Shechem, the man Shechem, his heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Well, some of the translations say drawn to her, attracted to her. It, it, it's a physical attraction. And he didn't love her. He didn't love her the right way. He might have wanted to be with her, but really in a physical way. Because if he loved her, he never would have raped her. Never. He's behaving like a pagan. And then look what he does in the next verse. Verse 4, he says, And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, Get me this girl. Get me this girl as my wife. To me, it sounds like it's more proof he doesn't love her. He's almost demanding like an object. Like, get me that new car. Go buy me this thing. I want a new PlayStation 5 or 6 or whatever's out now. Even I don't know. He sees her as an object and tells his rich father, get me that. He's a spoiled rich kid, and that's why he abused poor Dinah. But look what happens next. Let's read verse 5. It says, when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, so he's, he's told this now, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. They're all herding and working. Look what it says next. So he did nothing about it did nothing about it until they came home. And even then, he doesn't do anything. It's not real clear, but he doesn't really seem to me, as I read this, to be very upset about it. And to me, his inaction speaks volumes about himself. Um, it tells us a lot about his character. He doesn't seem to protest, doesn't go bang on the Hamor's door, what are you doing, you know, how dare you? Your son did this, this, and this to my daughter. Then also his leadership, um, that'll come out even more clear when the sons come back finally from the field. He does not lead his family in, in a proper response to this horrible crime. And don't make a mistake, it's a horrible crime. But he should have had a response of some sort. It looks like in Scripture he has none. Next verse, verse 6, it says, Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk to Jacob. So look now who's making the first move. It's not Jacob, it's the other guy. The pagan leader is engaging first. And don't forget, remember a couple chapters ago when Jacob was really afraid of meeting his brother Esau? Remember he set out these different gifts up ahead and he put the women and children up front, he put everybody in front, had it all staged in groups. He's in the very back. He's kind of behaving like a Jacob and that's why his name is not Israel yet, really, even though God has given it to him. Verse 7 says, Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the field as soon as they heard what happened. So word must have went out to them. They come running home. They are not happy. And I don't blame them. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done such an outrageous thing. 
Some of your translations say in Israel. Some say against Israel. Either way, it's the same idea. It was against Dinah, but it was also in their minds against their people group, the, the nation of Israel, even though it's a small nation right now. By sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. So terrible crime shouldn't be done. They're not happy about it, and rightfully so. Because in Middle Eastern culture where they're living, family is everything. And they've really, in their minds, attacked, they've not just attacked our sister and violated her, they've attacked our family. And, and there was a way this should have happened. Also, I think they're probably, it doesn't say, but in my mind, they're likely to be upset. You know, there should have been a dowry, a bride price, this negotiation, this long, prolonged engagement like we see with Joseph and Mary. You know, it says they were betrothed, but they hadn't, you know, gotten married yet. It's a long process. That's what should have happened in this situation, and it didn't. But don't forget, the real problem, whose fault is it? In my mind, Jacob. Jacob and then partly Leah, but she was the wife. In that culture, the, the father would have you know, had more control over the situation because, once again, he left his only daughter, leave the house unsupervised, unguarded, and really, worst of all, I think, unprotected. Unprotected. What kind of dad does that in that culture, knowing what's out there, knowing what's out there? It's Jacob being Jacob, unfortunately. Let's look what Hamer says, because we read that he came to meet Jacob. What's he going to say? Verse 8 says, but Hamer said to them, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. He's trying to campaign now. Please give her to him as his wife, because remember, he demanded to his dad, go get me her. Get me that lady for my wife. This should have happened at first glance. He should have seen her, maybe been attracted to her, who knows, physically, mentally, and said, Dad, I think I'm going to marry her. You go negotiate with her dad, and I'll wait. You know, I'll, I'll wait the, the right process. That did not happen because he's, once again, I think, a spoiled rich kid. Then look what he says. His, this Hamor, the father of Shechem, adds in verse 9, Intermarry with us. Give us all your daughters. He says, your daughters, I'll add the word all, and take our daughters for yourselves. Let's all just come one big, happy, mingled up family. You can settle among us. Now he's going to try to entice the offer a little bit. You can settle among us. The land is open. You can live in it. You can trade in it and acquire property in it. Just be like us. Be like us pagans is what he's left out. Because this might sound kind of enticing to Jacob. He's going to get free land and you know, property and animals. But really, it's an open door to disaster. And here's a verse. This is a New Testament verse, but it echoes the same concept I'm trying to make. You know the verse. Don't be yoked with unbelievers. Crystal clear in God's word. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? And this is not just for couples and marriage and betrothal, by the way. You can apply that same principle. You know, we, we don't have to be kind of this holy huddle and never mingle with unbelievers. But based on that verse, I probably shouldn't arrange like a business, you know, partnership with an unbeliever. That's yoked. Because the, the, the word you want to focus on is don't be yoked, connected tightly, partnered with, not just romantically. In business... My best friend, if, it, if I'm so yoked to my best friend, but they're an unbeliever, they're always trying to drag me to some unchristian thing that's going to corrupt me, 
I don't want to be yoked to that type of person. I want to be yoked to my wife and some of you as my friends. We can know the world. We can mingle with the world. But, you know, don't be of the world, as we like to put it. We can be in the world, not of the world. So this would have been a terrible idea if Jacob accepts this. Because it would have led eventually to some sort of spiritual compromise. They were idol worshipers. That's going to come out in the next couple of chapters, even more. They would have been likely assimilated, absorbed into Canaanite culture. Before long, there wouldn't even be an Israel. It would be just one big mix of messed up people. It's really an ungodly offer is what it is. So here's our next point if you're taking notes. We've got to be careful. Satan is the master of kind of hiding a terrible outcome, a spiritual compromise with an enticing wrapper, something that looks attractive. And in Jacob's case, remember they said, just we'll give you some land. You can have you know, territory, animals, there's stuff here. You can have our daughters. We'll mingle and marry. An enticing offer leads to tragedy down the road when it's an ungodly yoking like this one. So in our lives, we have to be careful that Satan doesn't throw some enticing bait out for us that looks good on the surface, but it's a terrible outcome. A career, a move away across the country for some reason that's not a godly reason. I'm moving for a giant raise, but yet it's, what if I move to Las Vegas and double my salary? Would that be a good move? I would say no. I'm not saying everybody in Las Vegas is bad if you're from there, by the way. But there's a lot of bad stuff in Vegas. We all know that. You know, I love Melbourne, don't you? And I love this church even more. So I'm happy right here. Don't, don't worry, I'm not going to Vegas, I promise. Back to our story, verse 11. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let, now he's going to try to make a little bit of amends. Let me find favor in your eyes, and I'll give you whatever you ask. Monetary is what he's talking about. Make the price for the bride and the gift I'm to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay it. That should have happened before the other horrible action, before his you know, sexual attack. He's doing everything backwards because he now just is trying to make amends the wrong way and pay them off. Only, here's his real demand, only give me that young woman as my wife. I've got to have her. It's like an obsession with him. You can almost hear it if you read it right. He doesn't love her. He's obsessed with her. But once again, this would be a terrible thing if they were to do this. Because look what he's not doing. You can almost read volumes and by what he's not doing. Where's his apology? Does he ever say, I'm sorry? He hadn't yet, and I'll help you out. He's not going to, as far as we can tell. No apology, no regret for his terrible action, his crime. He committed a crime. The brothers are furious. There's no repentance, no regret. It shows you why God says, stay away from those Canaanites. And really, in some ways, I would make the case, it's an insult. He's trying to buy off and bribe the, the men. Oh, just forget what I did. Just take a bunch of money. That'll fix it. That's why I think, by the way, he's a spoiled rich kid. He's clearly trying to use money to fix a terrible wrong. So let's see what the brothers do. Verse 13. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully. Where'd they learn that from? What's their dad's name? Remember I told you it's an idiom. We see it as Jacob. We see it as heel catcher. When they heard the word Jacob, they hear deceiver. 
they replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. So they have already in their mind come up with an evil plan. That's what it really means, an evil, sinful plan of their own. We're going to see it pretty quick here in verse 14 and 15. They said to them, you know, we can't do such a thing. We can't move in. We can't take your daughters. We can't mingle. We can't give our sister to a man that's uncircumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. They're going to make it like a religious reason. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition, one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. So they're deceitful, but here's the worst part of all. They really have no intention of doing this, and we'll see that more and more as we keep reading. But they're hiding their evil plan under the guise of a religious reason, this circumcision. Because, you know, we might see circumcision nowadays as a medical procedure done for either just common practice or, you know, a tradition. Maybe sometime it's a medical reason. For them, it was a spiritual reason. And we'll see when I put the verses up. Let's look at a couple of verses and refresh our memory. Here's the covenant, the first part, Genesis 17, 7. I will establish, this is God talking, my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants, so that would be Jacob and all these boys, for the generations to come to be your personal God. The covenant is I'll be your God and the God of your descendants. So not just your children, your children's children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. But then you jump down to 11, what's the sign of this covenant? You, all of you that are going to enter in this bargain with me to be your God, you will undergo circumcision. It'll be the sign of my covenant. It's a personal thing between me and my chosen people. These sons are corrupting that covenant for their own evil plan. So they're really, in my mind, and I think you would agree, disrespecting God and his covenant. As I studied this, I was kind of thinking, you know, God has killed people in the Old Testament for less. They're almost lucky, in my mind, God didn't take care of them himself. But God works in mysterious ways, so we can never question what he's up to. But I would say they made a huge mistake. They sinned. They corrupted God's holy covenant. You know, we aren't under those rules and laws anymore. We're under the new covenant, Jesus. We don't have to obey all that, but they did. That was their binding agreement with the Lord. And they took the Lord's holy symbol and, and corrupted it for crime, essentially. But, you know, all through history that's happened. Um, I, I could bore us all with a lot of long examples, but I, I picked two just so you can see what I'm talking about. There's a war that you probably don't know because I wanted to pick one we're not super familiar with. It's called the 30 Years' War, 30 Years' War. And I would bet nobody in this room, including myself, before I studied it, has ever heard of it. It was from 1618 to 1648. And it was when what they used to call the Holy Roman Empire started separating into Protestant and Catholic kind of factions. As they separated, they fought over religion. It's holy, not property, not money, not land, not things, religion. It was a religious war straight up. Eight million people died in 1600. Eight million. I don't know what the population of the world was back then, but I bet it wasn't near what it is now. So if 8 million died in the name of religion, misguided religion. Another example that I kind of thought of as I was studying, 
Think about when the conquistadors came to the Americas. It was all done under the guise of religion. We're going to give all these kind of natives that live here, they're, they're all, you know, people wearing loincloths and uncivilized, so we're going to civilize them with a religion. All they really want to do is take their land, take their gold, take their stuff, and take over. All done in the name of religion. Who knows how many people perished through Central and South America for that kind of religious reason. So, all through history, men have messed up religion. It started right here in Genesis 34, in a way. Back to our story, verse 16. If you'll do this, is what they're saying. If you'll have this circumcision, verse 16 says, then we'll give you our daughters and we'll take your daughters for ourselves. But they don't have any intention. That's really a flat-out lie. We'll settle among you. We'll become one people. But, verse 17, if you will not agree to this, this circumcision, we'll take our sister and go. We're going to leave. Well, that probably would have been the smartest thing to do. They can't undo what happened to Dinah, but they probably should get out of there and leave. But they're really lying, and they have no intention yet. They think anything they're saying, anything they're doing is justified because of the terrible crime that Dinah experienced. We'll see later that really two wrongs don't make a right. But look what came next, verse 18 and 19. Their proposals seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. I guess circumcision didn't scare them too bad. The young man, Shechem, that's the Shechem is the young man, who was the most honored, most honored, don't miss that, of all his father's family and all his people, lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So he sounds like he went first. Well, we'll find out in verse 23 why their proposal sounded good to all the pagan Canaanites. They have a motive of why it's good, and we'll get to it. But Shechem, most honored. Think about what he just did to poor Dinah. If he's the most honorable character in the city, what does that say about the rest of them? And some of your translations say most honored, most honorable is how it reads in other translations. He's kind of like their, their pillar of, you know, virtue almost. And he raped poor Dinah. No wonder God said stay away from these kind of people groups. He was trying to protect his chosen people, which is our next point if you're taking notes. God's commands aren't designed to restrict our fun. They're not. God's prevention is for our protection. Let me say that again. God's prevention is for our protection. It's not to restrict us, to make life miserable. You know, the world and some of us, and I would put myself in this category, think about before you were a Christian, before you were saved. Didn't you think Christianity was going to be this boring life and you'd lose all the fun stuff? Isn't that kind of comical now that you think about it now? This is the most fun life there is. We have the best answer, don't we? We just were so dumb we didn't realize it. In our world out there, it's sad to me that they still think that, and I know how they think because I used to think it. Well, that church life looks kind of fun, but I don't want to give up this or that or this kind of thing, this behavior. Then we get here and we're like, that was the dumbest thing I ever thought. I don't even miss that old habit or whatever it was. But God gives his commands, his instructions, his word to protect his people. It's all about protection, not prevention. Back to our story, verse 20. 
So now let's see what the, what are the Canaanites going to do? So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of the city. So now they want everybody involved because that was the bargain. Here, and now they're going to kind of replay the demand. Verse 21. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them and us both. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But, there is a condition, but the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition our males be circumcised as they themselves are. So now the men at the gate, all the leaders, and really probably most of the city, because, you know, what else would you have to do in those days but go hang out and argue with each other at the city gate? They've got to discuss this, what I would call a compromise. Now they're going to have to compromise. Our title was about compromises. And by the way, I would make the case circumcision is a painful compromise, wouldn't you? So they're going to have to go through a painful compromise to get what they want, which is, we'll see in verse 23 right now. Let me read 23. This is what I would call their real motivation. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their animals become ours? Let us agree to those terms, and then they'll settle among us. It's a financial decision. They want their stuff. That's why they're going to compromise. It's going to cost them. And what they're thinking in my mind is, I'm willing to trade physical pain for financial gain. Physical pain, financial gain. Sounds good to me. Get the knives out. What they're really saying is, I need more stuff. I need more stuff. More animals, more land, more possessions. In modern day, we would never occur something like this where we'd have to be circumcised to get some money or something. But here's what I also thought about as I was, you know, preparing this message, a modern day equivalent. How many people do we know, and it's sad to think about for me anyway, that would trade spiritual pain for financial gain? Spiritual pain, spiritual compromise. In other words, they care more about stuff than God. Because in my mind, that's trading spiritual pain for financial gain. You can't take it with you. That's why we're having the Leave an Eternal Legacy class that I said in the announcements. Leave it here. Let other people be blessed by it. Let God use your money that you leave to bless his kingdom. They just want more, 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 more stuff, um, which reminded me, as, as I read it once again, of a verse in Ecclesiastes. It's a good reminder, by the way. And Solomon, who's the wisest man in the world, wrote this. Whoever loves money sometimes has enough, right? Is that what it says? Never has enough. Solomon, who we think is the richest man the world has ever seen, if he took his money and put it in modern terms, it would be who knows how many billions, probably so many zeros it wouldn't fit on a piece of paper. He said... Money is never enough. People that have it, they never have enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too, in other words, money is meaningless. That's from the smartest, wisest, richest man in the entire universe. He would make people in our era, you know, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, look like paupers, penniless. And he said the pursuit of money is worthless. So, 
That's what they're up to, though. They want monetary gain. They're willing to endure some physical pain to get it. So in verse 24, we're going to see. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Likely at the city gate. That's where all this is taking place. So now think about painful circumcision at the city gate, the heat of the day, dull knives, however they did it. I don't even want to think about this. Unsafe, unsterile, terrible conditions. And we'll see, I think it was done with terribly conditions and in a hard way. Look at the next verse, 25. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain. So three days later, they're still in bed. They can't even get up. Now the real motivation's coming out. Look what happens next. I stopped. Two of Jacob's sons, Simon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city that are all laying in bed in pain, killing every male. Wiped them out. Massacre. Not just murder, massacre. So now the truth is revealed. The real motivation, Jacob's sons and their evil plan, they wanted circumcision to disable the men so they could be easily stabbed to death with their swords. They couldn't fight back. It was a setup. Circumcision was just a setup for murder. They had no intentions of mingling, marrying, taking property like they said. They were being deceitful. They lied, and they used God's covenant of circumcision for murder. More on that toward the end. Then, verse 26, it says, they put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword, so they killed them too, killed them last, I guess, so they could watch all the other murders, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. Now, as I read this, I don't know if you have, but I, I can honestly tell you, I've never noticed that one verse right there. Dinah was apparently at Shechem's house already. I just never, I guess, caught that. So in my mind, Jacob has already given her over there to him. He's already made the compromise. They were campaigning. They were asking. If she's in Shechem's house, it's already happened. Um, so in my mind anyway, I'm pretty harsh sometimes on poor Jacob, aren't I? He did it willingly. He willingly let, oh, it's already happened now. What can I do about it? I guess I'll take some property and money and maybe it'll be okay, but go ahead and take her. What kind of terrible father is Jacob? But don't forget, he's a patriarch. In, in Bible, he's known for his faith and, and stuff, so he will be redeemed. He's not a hopeless case. That should encourage us, by the way. More on that at the end, too. Back to our text, verse 27. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city. So now they're going to, they just murdered everybody, now they're going to take all their valuables. They stole everything, looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, everything else of theirs of value in the city and out in their fields, even took the crops. They carried off all their wealth, and here's another sad part, by the way, don't miss this one, and all their women and children. So now they're enslaving the women and children. Mass murder, theft, slavery. Taking as plunder everything in their houses. Murder, massacre, theft, slavery. What a great role model, Jacob, you were for your sons. Like where'd they learn this kind of behavior? Jacob didn't do it himself, but they, they didn't learn good behavior for sure. And we'll see in our very last verse tonight that the sons are going to try to say it was justified. 
But let me be real clear. Dinah's rape was a terrible, terrible, terrible crime. Terrible. To an unprotected single female that couldn't stop this Shechem guy. But there's likely either people watching online, maybe people in this room, that maybe you've been sexually attacked before. Um, in a crowd this size, it's probably likely. And I just want to say I'm sorry for that. And I just want to take a moment to pray for healing for anybody that maybe is still struggling with that kind of trauma in your life. Because I can't even imagine it. As a man and a pastor, I can't even imagine what that would be like as a lady to have to endure something like that. But I just want to, once again, apologize, say we're sorry as a church. And also, by the way, we have a thing at our church office called Women's Biblical Counseling. If that's you and you're still struggling with the hurt of that past trauma, call the church office. Contact our women's ministry. We have ladies that would love to mentor and help you through that process. Some of them possibly even had that same experience. But let me just pray right now for just healing for that kind of terrible thing. Lord, tonight we're reading this story, and it's just sometimes sad to read how people behave, Lord. And I just want to pray right now for any of the ladies in our church or anybody in our church or not, Lord, any female that's been attacked physically, sexually, um, emotionally, any, any form, Lord, that's a terrible crime that should never happen, and you never condone it. it. It's the example of what sin in people's heart does. So, Lord, I just pray for healing, restoration, and also encourage the ladies, if they, they are struggling, Lord, just give them the courage to reach out and, and confide in another lady in a confidential way and just find healing and grace and mercy through your word and your concepts, it would be you that heals, Lord, not the people you send, but use people to comfort us and guide us to give us your peace that surpasses all understanding, Lord. So we just pray for that right now for any woman that's still struggling. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now you see why I said chapter 34 is, is a terrible chapter. I mean, there's really nothing hardly to learn except what not to do. This is a great example of God's word is always powerful and instructs us. In this chapter, we learn don't do any of what things they did. Do everything the opposite, and you'll likely be okay in God's eyes. But it's really a terrible indictment on Jacob and even Leah. But let's look some more. Jacob's going to dig a bigger hole from himself in the next verse because he's still not behaving well. Verse 30 says, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, the two that did it, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number if they join forces against me and attack me. Notice me, me, me. I and my household will be destroyed. What's his main concern? Jacob. He's not worried about poor Dinah and her defilement. He's worried about Jacob getting attacked. He doesn't seem to care that his sons just massacred an entire people group and stole everything and lied about it. His only concern is you're making me look bad. You're making me look bad to the whole region. Here's their defense. Remember, I told you our last verse in our text tonight, verse 31 says, the son's reply would be, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Well, of course, the answer is no. But even though that answer is no, it does not give the sons the right to massacre and do mass murder that God never told them to. Once again, I told you there's no mention of God. There's our last verse. God's name has never come up tonight. It's really a sad chapter. There's lessons to be learned, but once again, do the opposite. 
But it brings up our last main point if you're taking notes. Sin is never justified. Even when terrible things have happened, even when in our mind our actions are somehow justified in retaliation, a sinful wrong is still wrong. Two wrongs can't make a right. We have to give it to the Lord and, and try to comfort. Nobody's comforting poor Dinah that I can tell either. She's at Shechem's house. So our sin is never justified. Sin is sin. God's against it. But in a way, as I was studying this, I'm going to segue off on a little rabbit trail if you're okay with that because we've got a few minutes. What happens to Simeon and Levi? Do you kind of wonder that as I told you all these stories? What, what happens? Well, we're going to finish Genesis eventually. I'm not sure what month it will happen, but in chapter 49 we're going to find out. So I'm going to steal a couple of verses out of 49 and, and give us, it's kind of a cliffhanger. I don't want to leave you hanging until chapter 49. Let's look at 49 on screen, a few verses. Here's what happens to Simeon and Levi. Jacob at this point is kind of near his deathbed. He's going to pray over them, and this is his prayer. Simeon and Levi, are, imagine this is your prayer of blessing from your father. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. I'm sure he's thinking about this story we read. Let me, as their dad, not enter their council. I'm not listening to those guys. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger. And look what else it says. Hamstrung oxen cut their hamstring for no reason in their anger. And they've done as they pleased. Cursed be their anger. It's so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. That's their father's prayer over them, and we'll get to that eventually later. So then it makes you wonder, did that happen? Well, that's what I wonder anyway. Do you wonder that? What really happened then? Because that's just the kind of prayer of doom over them in a way. Um, well, Simeon is scattered eventually, and it, it's chapters later, and it's more when Israel enters the promised land. Um, they get absorbed. They don't really have an, they have an land allotment, but it's inside the tribe of Judah's land allotment. And they're much smaller, so they eventually get absorbed into the tribe of Judah, and they're scattered by being absorbed into Judah. Now, Levi, that should ring a bell, because that ends up being the tribe of Levites. Remember that whole messy golden calf incident where Moses is up on the mountain and Aaron gets impatient, and the people say, make us a false idol, and they take all their earrings off and throw them in the fire. And Aaron says, we threw earrings in the fire, and a golden calf came out. I don't know how that happened. That was Aaron's story, by the way. But God used their zeal that day, because Moses comes down. He's not happy, and he says, who's for God right now? And the Levites say, we are, because they're very zealous. That's probably why Levi did what he did. He was overzealous. And God used their zeal to murder 3,000 golden calf worshipers. But here's what's kind of interesting about Levi. So that doesn't explain their, how do they get scattered? Well, if you really follow Jewish history, the Levites become, you know, the priestly tribe. They don't get any land in the new, in the new kingdom or the new promised land. They get dispersed. They go to every kind of city. They're the priests. They don't get an allotment. They have to stay in the temple working so they're scattered amongst the whole nation. So they, they both get scattered. Simeon gets absorbed. Levi gets scattered. But here's the irony uh, as I study this too. Is I, you know, God has a sense of humor. He definitely has a sense of humor. I'm about to prove it to you, I think, in a small way. 
Because we just read this horrible story of how they used circumcision and, and abused God's sort of covenant. So the abusers of circumcision in the story, Levi, becomes the kind of keeper of circumcision. Because later in Israel's history, and you know what I'm getting at now, you would take your son on a certain day to the priest and they would circumcise him. So the Levites end up being in charge of circumcision. God says, what you use for bad, I'm going to use for good. But here's the good part of the story, too, in a way. It makes you wonder, okay, then what happened at the end? Well, how about if I go back to Revelation? Let's go to the very end. This is the end of the end. I'll just read these two. I'm not going to put them on screen. Revelation 7, 4. Both tribes are mentioned. Even though the Levites don't get land, even though Simeon gets absorbed, here's what Revelation 7, 4 says. And, and this is about the 144,000 that are sealed, by the way, that we studied a year ago or whatever it was. It says in 7.4, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel. Then if you drop down to verse 7, it mentions each tribe by name. Here's what it says. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. So what does that tell me? They're both eventually and in times forgiven and completely restored. They're part of the 144,000. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how, but we know God's character. I would make the case, even though it's not written and recorded, that somehow, some way, they repented. Levi and Simeon, maybe personally, and the tribe themselves would be forgiven. Um, there was generational curses in some degrees back then. But if they're in end times, and they're mentioned as the 144, clearly they're back in good standing with the Lord. And as we studied Revelation, if you remember... There was 12 thrones, and we believe possibly anyway that you know, each tribe has a throne. Or, and there's also elders that were mentioned, 12 elders. Partly, partly of those could be representatives from each tribe. So Simeon, even though it's absorbed, resurfaces. Why am I telling you all this? No matter what we've done, how bad we've been a Jacob, there's hope for us too. We can be forgiven. So no matter what mistake we've made in our past, I'm going to tell us two things. If you've never accepted Jesus, I'm going to close with a prayer in a second. Come find me at the end. Let's pray a prayer. Don't leave here without God being your God. Not like Jacob where it's your parents' God, your grandpa's God. God will forgive anything and everything if you do. We just saw that in that story. And Jacob, by the way, like I said earlier, is known as one of the patriarchs. He's one of the Bible heroes, even though in this chapter he's behaving terribly. That should give us hope that no matter what we've done, we just need to repent, turn toward the Lord, and follow him. Do a 180. Leave our old life behind and follow the Lord. So if that's you, let's pray that before you leave. But for the rest of us, you are believers. You've prayed that prayer. You're saved. You're going to heaven. But maybe you're letting your old life still condemn you. You're letting Satan whisper in your ear, God knows what you did. That pastor said you're forgiven, but you know you're not. That's the enemy. That's a lie. As we open tonight, let me just put this back full circle. Remember, I, as I prayed to open, I said, it's hard to me to have imagined this, by the way. God sees our sin, if we're saved, as never happening. It doesn't even exist. It's not that he didn't remember it. It's like it didn't happen. Now, he does remember it because he's God. But in his eyes, it didn't happen 
because of Jesus. So maybe you're letting your old life just kind of beat you up. You're thinking about mistakes. You're thinking about maybe in your life as we still, yeah, I, I was a Jacob at one point. We all were Jacob, weren't we? But don't let that life condemn you. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus like you and me. So let's just pray right now, and I just want to pray over all of us, that there will be no condemnation for any mistake we've made. God doesn't care what we did. He cares what we're going to do. Follow him from this day forward, starting right now, right this moment. So let's just pray that we don't let the enemy convince us otherwise. Lord, tonight, we love you. Thank you for this painful story, this criminal story, Lord, and let us never repeat these mistakes these people made. We can learn from mistakes as well as encouraging things, Lord. But tonight, I just want to pray encouragement over anyone listening or watching this, even who knows, months later, that they're letting the enemy tell them they've been a terrible person in the past, and God knows it, everybody around them knows it, and you're going to expose it somehow and bring out that old history. Lord, Scripture says the opposite that we are just washed white as snow in your eyes because of your son, Jesus. So, Lord, let anybody struggling with past hurts, condemnation, let, the, let them tonight, Lord, just walk in victory, complete freedom, that they're 100% forgiven and washed clean by you. And, Lord, um, just help us do that. We need the Holy Spirit to help. Holy Spirit, you help us. Just focus on the Lord, his promises, his word, and reject those terrible, harmful ideas of the enemy. We need your help. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said amen. amen. See you this weekend.